You are listening to a pleasure podcast. For more from our sex podcast collective, visit pleasurepodcasts.com. Welcome back to Private Parts Unknown, a podcast about love and sexuality around the world. I'm Courtney Kosak and Private, we are continuing on our series, part two in our two-part series with the inimitable Antonia Crane. She is a writer. She is a former stripper. She is a sex worker advocate. And if you haven't listened to last week's episode, that is the kickstart of all the sex work labor rights reporting that I have done over the last four or five years. And it all started with an interview with Antonia. So go back to last week's episode and check that out. Hear how Soldiers of Pole started. Soldiers of Pole is now Strippers United. And really the kernel, the initial inspiration for what the Star Garden strippers accomplished. They were able to unionize in May and they are currently America's only union strippers. And a large part of that is Antonia's influence. And Antonia also was a lusty, and the lusty ladies were the original unionizing strippers back in San Francisco in the late 90s. This is such a good interview. There is so much cool information in this. Antonia is just delightful, so you're gonna love it. We are gonna hear all about how this all went down straight from her lips what went down at the Lusty Lady Peep Show, and how she inspired a new wave of unionizing strippers. Here we go, privates. Hi, I'm Antonia Crane. I'm the founder of Strippers United. I'm an author. I'm a PhD candidate at USC, and I advocate and champion the rights of strippers and sex workers everywhere. I went to your thing. You did a panel in November after the NLRB vote count for NoHo stripper strike. You were there with a bunch of former lusties. I got such good tape from that panel. I was like, I got to have Antonia back to fill in the gaps. So I want to get your story. I read about it and spent, but just start at the beginning. You're in SF. How many clubs had you worked at prior to the lusty? I want to talk about your time there and then how you guys eventually unionized. Great. So to begin, I was hoovering methamphetamine <laughs> by the mountain <laughs> in like 92 and attending Mills College for Black feminist thought, post-structural feminist theory, women's studies. We called it women's studies then. We called it ethnic studies then. We called it mm-hmm. performance art studies in at Mills College. And that's in Oakland. And I couldn't make my rent and I was struggling. And I was also slinging coffee. I would have to get up at 5am. So of course, I would just stay up all night and then go like open this cafe at 5am. It was called Jump in Java. It was in Davos Triangle. And I was uh, slinging coffee and I was just like, God, I fucking hate this. And I would go home. And I was also working on the hate at Wasteland. And I would go basically dumpster diving for clothes. And we would go to put out night, which isn't what it sounds like. Put out night was when everybody put their furniture on the sidewalk and we would borrow somebody's car 
and literally drive around and pick up suitcases full of clothes and pick up desks and bookshelves and go home. And like, we'd have spray painting parties and just spray paint furniture. And that's like how I lived. Right. And so then I was working at Wasteland, which is a used clothing store. And it was before it was like McWasteland. It used to be actually very cool and goth and interesting with tons of like really cool forties suits and just like all kinds of quirky used vintage clothing. But it's still retail and you're not getting paid a ton, right? It was like, God, what was minimum wage? I want to say it was like four seventy-five or like five. Oh my God. Five fifty. I just remember I just remember it being so like, was it seven twenty-five? I don't know. It was just like, you know, we'll have to look it up, like what was minimum wage in nineteen ninety-two? That's what I was making. Hey, privates, just want to pop in and let you know that minimum wage in California in 1992 was a mere $4.25. So Antonia was trying to exist on $4.25 an hour. So I would sell my clothes and I would just like wash the clothes and like sew buttons on them. And then I would go like on my lunch break at Wasteland, sell my clothing. And I was just like, God, I I owed everyone $300. I was that bitch that would write letters to the landlord and like go to find where his office was and like give it to the front desk person and be like, and it was, it was just a letter from me begging my landlord for like 10 more days. Like that's what happened. And I was stripping at the century. It is on Larkin street. It's in the loin in the tenderloin. It's across the street from Mitchell Brothers where a lot of like queer women were doing live sex shows, but they didn't, they wouldn't hire anybody who was like a little bit rougher or tattooed. And I had a septum piercing, a tongue piercing, super short, spiky hair. I have pictures I can show you. I was actually bald. It was like the Sinead O'Connor kind of like, I was bald and wore um, like Pulp Fiction, like the wigs. Uh And um, I would just borrow clothes from my friends to go audition and like, I just was that person. I would just like, I was like, can I just borrow that dress? And like that, this clingy, weird t-shirt dress. And I would just wear my Doc Martens. And I, I worked at the Century. I was on, on meth still. We're talking 1992, 1993. So I was like shaking. Everybody else was on heroin and I was on meth. Oh, you were ahead of your time. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So I was ahead of my time. Everybody was just like on China white. Like I remember them saying that word and I was just like, what are you doing? What is that? But they were all on heroin. I was on meth. And um, I just remember being like, they were always saying like, slow down, slow down on stage. You're too fast. Cause of course I was just like freaking out, just like vibrating on fucking speed and like tearing off some weird dress. And like, I remember I danced to stretch like an, an extended remix version of Sinead O'Connor's Stretched on Your Grave to like I had on a veil and I was just like, it's performance art. Was it always performance art for you? Back then it was. Stripping was really cool. Like all of the lesbians were doing it. Like all of the like weird, like dirtbag queers, we were all stripping. It just made sense. Like it just made sense. I remember there were these like identical twins and they would just like have these boas, so, like these showgirl routines. And there was this woman who um, was uh, quite curvy, like quite more curvy than you would imagine being like a stripper. I really, your mind is blown about like, wow, what's really allowed? What is beautiful? Like 
Uh-huh. I feel like things got more oppressive later, but like back then, like this very curvy blonde woman, this very Anna Nicole Smith body positive woman who was just gorgeous, had literally her own room in the club, like a um, storage room where customers would fill it with like television sets, stereos, speakers, candelabras. I just remember being shown like her room. Like she had literally a storage unit inside the bowels of a strip club. That's insane. So when you're, okay, so you're versus making $7 an hour or six twenty-five yeah. or whatever the well, fuck you yeah, were making. Whatever it was. But whatever you were making stripping was like hundreds of dollars a night, right? Like way more night and day. Well, you know, I was on speed, so I was bad at it. Oh. At first, right? So I had to learn from these junkies how to like, and they always told me just like, you know, just like, Ask them, like, do you want to play with a kitty? And, like, they were just all so gacked. It was so funny. They were beautiful. They were, like, 20, you know, like, everyone just ask them if you want to play with the kitty. <sighs> and, yeah, so I was kind of bad at it. There's also just, like... I can't imagine you being <laughs> bad, though. Like, knowing you now... So I'm curious, were you born this way? Or <laughs> is this... <laughs> Is this decades of learned? (laughs) I learned, um, I learned, I just watched and listened and learned. I learned how to pole dance from the black strippers at Market Street Cinema. They taught me how to hustle as well. And we all really got along. Like we really got along. I know it's weird. It's not really known. And you, if you watch any television show at all ever in the last 30 years, it seems like strippers are all extremely hostile toward each other. No. Uh-huh. <laughs> and um, like, I also was just that, I was that person who, um, like when I worked at, so I worked at the Century initially, which is funny because I started at the Century and then I ended up back at the Century like 12 years later also. I just made a big circle around San Francisco. So um, I worked at the Century, but I also worked at the Crazy Horse when I was using, Mm. when I was high. And um, Nina Hartley came to perform because back then they would pay for these performers, these porn performers to come and perform on stage. And they were feature performers. And then those performers would like stand and with their posters and people would get pictures with them and posters. I have posters somewhere. Anyway, Nina Hartley came to perform at Crazy Horse. She walks into the dressing room. She's like, who's going to have sex with me tonight on stage? I'm like, I am. Me. (laughs) And like, I literally got fucked by Nina Hartley on the stage at the Crazy Horse. I guess it probably was like this. We're talking about 95 or 96. Uh, Amazing. So are you at the Lusty at this point? So I walked into, okay, so I have to get sober first. So I was a bad stripper because I was high and I was sort of like, I was just like, oh, cool. I have $80. I'm going to leave. I can buy my drugs. What? Like, I can buy my drugs. I have like $100. That's fine. <sighs> and so I was just like, wow, I, I made $80 like in three hours. This is amazing. And so I would just like go buy my drugs or I would get, you know, get my speed or I would like go get drunk and I would, or I would like m- make $40 start playing pool, start winning at pool and then get drunk and then just like leave, like forget. It was just so, I was, I was terrible. I was a terrible hustler because I was just like, hi. And I just didn't care. And I didn't want to be touched. Like the thing about me and meth, which is different from boys, the boys I was running with who were making speed and cooking speed. 
the gay men, which um, I was sort of like a member of this group for some reason, they all wanted to fuck all the time on meth. And I was just like, gross, do not touch me. (laughs) And so I'm like a stripper who doesn't want to be touched. (laughs) (laughs) How the fuck was I going to make money? So um, then I I lose my shit as one does on meth for years. Um, Mm -hmm. Hallucinations, hearing voices. I'm 106 pounds. My teeth are see-through. I didn't Mm -hmm. lose my teeth miraculously. I just looked like I looked awful and I thought I looked really hot and like I was um, I was homeless. I didn't realize that at the time. And now looking back, clearly I was like I did not have a home. I couch surfed. That's called homeless. I was that. It's like it really took me years to like really see what Mm -hmm. happened and see how I lost my shit and like really lost my grip, you know, and became like a drug addict. Like my friends were telling me, you are a speed freak. You need to get help. So anyway, I end up in a psych ward on a 72 hour hold at Davies medical center. I've sliced my wrist open. You can't see it. I'm tattooed. And I had no intention of staying sober. I just wanted to sort of like get my act together and sleep it off. And I ended up staying sober and getting sober and meeting a person, a woman who had like a year and a half and was working in the lap dancing club, stone cold sober, drove a 1974 orange Honda motorcycle. She had like thick hair down to her ass and a mermaid tattoo. And I was just like, you. (laughs) So she became my sponsor and I have been sober ever since. That's amazing. April 3rd, 1995 was when I walked out of that. Almost 30 years. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? Good for you. I became an excellent stripper. Hey, privates. Boo, boo, privates with penises. I'm talking to you. (laughs) Our sponsor, Fleshlight, can help you reach new heights with your self-pleasure. And that is because Fleshlight is the number one selling male sex toy in the world. And they don't just leave you hanging over there. At Fleshlight, you can explore sex toys with expert guides and advice, especially if you're a beginner or you're looking to level up. If you have been listening to the show for a while, you know how I feel about self-pleasure, and it is very, very good. And I definitely endorse using sex toys. I have a lot of fun with sex toys myself. So with the Fleshlight Girls series, you can embrace your wildest porn star fantasies with a different porn actress every night. What? With the variety of models, sensations, and intensities, you can live out limitless fantasies. And you can automate your fantasies with a universal launch that fits most Fleshlight products. With its innovative touch control system, just set the controls, sit back, and enjoy. And you have pleasure right in your hands. Your pleasure is in your complete control. And as the ultimate male pleasure device on the market, it's as versatile as you are anatomical, stamina building, vibrating, or made for couples, you name it. You define your luxury moment. And I just want to say, if you have any shame around sex toys, please don't. It is so much better than being weird with girls because you feel kind of desperate or whatever. Fleshlight just allows you to chill out, wait for the right girl when she comes, and in the meantime, you know you are going to be getting yours and having a good time. So you don't even have to sweat it. And right now, Fleshlight is offering Private Parts Unknown listeners 10% off your order with our code PRIVATE10. So you just go to ppupod.com. That's the website, ppupod.com. 
you click Fleshlight and you use the promo code PRIVATE10 to get 10% off your delicious new device. Again, that is ppupod.com and enter code PRIVATE10 and it really helps support the show. It helps support yourself and your own sex drive. So go ahead and use the link in the episode description. We can all be horny together. We can keep this podcast going. So get yourself a flashlight and get yourself off. And this is where, when you go to the lusty. Yeah. So through my work with, I will call her Josie. That was her stripper name. Through my AA recovery work with Josie, I kept my other jobs, but we decided that I was going to take a break from the hustle of the lap dancing clubs because I was like getting my drugs there. They were, Mm -hmm. the drugs were like on the tables in the dressing room. Everyone was really fucked up. It was just very hard for me to be around. And it wasn't like, oh, it's bad or it's dangerous. It was just like, I think I need a break from kind of just having it just literally three inches away from me at all times. Yeah while I'm getting sober. So I did that for like, I think I had a solid, maybe a solid year under my belt because I walked back into the lusty in 96 and I got sober in 95. So that checks. So I was like, you know, I think I can do this behind glass deal. Um, she was like, listen, you owe everyone money. You're behind on your rent. You're like, you're, you can't couch surf forever. Mm-hmm. A wonderful friend of mine, her name is Sarah Sophie Flicker. She was in the back of the ambulance when I was on the psych ward and I slept on her couch for a year, my first year. She was very kind to me. We went to mills together. Anyway, my, my sponsor was like, you got to be self-supporting. You got to like figure this out. You got to like get an apartment. You got to pay people back. And I'm like, but I can't like look at what I'm making. And she's like, well, you got to start dancing again. We kind of talked it through and decided the lusty would be a good option because it's the type of unusual strip club that has the audacity to wait a week for a paycheck. Like you, you're not walking with your money and buying drugs. You actually have to wait for that paycheck. It's a paycheck strip club. It's crazy. They have the audacity to like put you on a, you're on a schedule. I have actual schedules from the Lusty and pay stuff. You truly, you were like for sure employees. (laughs) No doubt about it. Okay. So I had never like been a real employee in this regard where you like, here's the time. Do you know what a time clock looks like where you actually punch it? (laughs) So I did that like a factory, like you go, (laughs) if you were one minute late, you didn't get your $1 raise. And they, they gave us like raises every so often. It wasn't horribly terrible, but it was like, you couldn't be one minute late to your shift or you would, you wouldn't get the raise. You'd have to wait the next week to have a perfect time sheet so like we literally punched in and um top wage was 21 an hour and to get to that you started at like 17 or something or 16 which was very good hourly mm-hmm. the shifts were like let's see what's 9 to 2 9 10 11 12 1 2 5 hour shifts mm-hmm. and um so i started there it was behind glass you know there's this aspect of sex work that few people talk about but Julia Query talks about it in her film, Live Nude Girls Unite, which is a very good film still today. She talks about the boredom of it. Mm. And there really is something that is very boring on a baseline of certain kinds of sex work. I mean, I find catering to men's needs terrifically boring <laughs> um, in general. So, 
but like being around, being with my workers and with the lusty ladies, the lusties, I'll just say, so we don't have to run into gender problems today, but like the lusties is what we call each other. So the lusties, that there was like this camaraderie, you know, and like just being very close to them, your arms are around them, you're doing pull trips, you're laughing together. It's worker solidarity in like a fishbowl environment. And so you really are talking to each other about what's going on at work. Like you just are because you're right next to each other. You're naked. You can tell when things are not going well or something terrible is happening or someone is scared or someone's tired or someone's injured. Like there's no way that that's not going to be a topic of conversation. And my friend star, Jessica Dezette, who was from ACT UP Portland, Maine, along with Chuck, who was support staff, Portland, Maine, ACT UP. These are activists. We're talking San Francisco, early 90s. We're AIDS activists. I was ACT UP San Francisco. Jessica Dezette was like, you're being filmed. Like your butthole is being filmed. Like you can see the little Jawa light. And she was like, she just was like, she lost her temper. And she was just like, move over here. And so we, I moved. She's like, I'm going to change things around here. She stormed off stage. Of course, management told her you can go work somewhere else if you don't like it here. That's what they will always tell you. And for me, that's what I remember. I think that if you ask any other lusty, they probably have a similar or same story, something similar to that of like someone was being filmed. We noticed someone walked out, someone got fired. We all walked out. It was just is, the right thing to do. It was the beginning. I mean, you're in that time frame where like that kind of thing was just starting to happen, right? Like people just had camcorders right. or whatever they could, whatever they were using at that time. Yeah. And we offered just like the Star Garden dancers, like we offered, I think there were lesbians who are a couple who were activists on stage with us and they were artists and they made posters, which I have in my refrigerator. And um, they made a sign that was like no cameras. So we were like, hey, we'll make the signs, just no cameras allowed. Like we'll help, we'll make the signs. Can we just do this? And management would rip down our signs. Like that doesn't cost anything. It doesn't cost you anything. But they just, there is an irrational fear or perhaps a rational fear of workers who are commiserating about their conditions, wanting safer protocols at work, wanting less discriminatory practices at work, wanting fair wages at work that just, you know, terrifies them. And so, yeah, so that was the beginning. Star walked off. There, I'm sure were moles. There are theories of who those people were. They called these, um, you know, intimidating meetings where we had to sit on the floor. I have notes like written on schedules from those meetings and like June, who I think her name was June. She was a show director. And she was an ex-dancer and she would cry and just be like, how can you do this to me after everything I do for you? It's very typical stuff. Because she's like, I work here and you're threatening my employment too or something? They're just, yeah. I mean, it's just, there's an irrational fear of feeling personally attacked when workers are taking a stand. And they love to work that emotional anger and they underestimate the solidarity of strippers. Uh, they really do. So tell me about, you know, you on that panel, you guys were talking about organizing then versus now, and you've mm -hmm. had a taste in both worlds. So what was it like when you guys got started? You walked out and then how are you making it happen? Okay. So what was fun? What's fun to talk about? I forget how old you are. You're probably maybe one day older. I'm 39. 
oh fuck you you are not 39 you're You're like maybe 30 (laughs) thank you (laughs) (laughs) so we used to meet at the chinese restaurant next door there was the time of answering machines so you lived in an apartment with six other people there was one answering machine and post-its all over the wall (laughs) and so you would just like be taking down messages and taking down messages and like putting them on post-its on the wall and like we would figure out where we were going to meet and what we were going to do right and so we would generally meet what was it called was it the onion or something there was some club across the street from the lusty that was where live bands played and stuff a bar and we would sometimes meet there we would often meet right next door at the chinese restaurant so we would meet in person no cell phones and have our strategy meetings. Are you picketing like the Star Garden girls or people? We did picket. Yeah, we did picket. Uh, we got a lot of support. We got a lot of signatures. I was kind of amazed at the support, actually. What I remember laughing about was that men would honk at us in support at our picket. They would drive by and honk at us for support. But if they were with their girlfriends or wives, they wouldn't. <laughs> So we used to laugh about that. So that was similar, (laughs) just like we'd wear wigs and and outfits and we had a lot of support. People have been waiting for a very long time for strippers to unionize. So what did it look like when you finally got what you wanted? I mean, so the Star Garden case, that's like 15 months. Did it take you guys that long? It took us two years. Holy shit. Yeah, this is fast. Wow. This is fast. And I think that, I, I mean, I don't, I don't really have any theories about it. It feels like it's not fast, probably for them. They picketed, I mean, they worked way harder on their campaign. There's a lot of social media stuff. They have a lot of fundraisers. I don't, I don't remember if we did have fundraisers. I don't think we did. We would do things like, I forget if it's in my book, but is Mudman in my book? This customer that drove us out in the middle of a mud area in San Rafael. I think so. You had clever names for a lot of people though. So (laughs) these customer regular clients of some of the dancers would like support us by being like, okay, like bring six of your friends. I'll meet you. We'll drive this Jeep out to this construction site. You'll pose with me. We'll get all muddy. It'll be sexy. And we'll pay you. Everybody got paid like at least $300. Like we would just do these weird jobs with each other's clients. Oh, cool. Yeah. I mean, kind of fucking dangerous if you think about it, but it's just, these were regular clients. So like they had been, you know, pre-screened, but yeah. So those are the fundraisers that we did. The Star Garden strippers are crushing it. Their picket has been like a celebratory clever thing that reminds me of ACT UP in its cleverness and flamboyance, in its tongue-in-cheekness, in its community spirit. Well, it proves they know how to put on a fucking show is the thing. Yeah, exactly. But they had you guys to be inspired by and to look at and have as a blueprint. Did you have anything like that as a blueprint? We had ACT UP. We had Food Not Bombs. Uh, We had Queer Nation. So it was like other groups at the time that were doing similar things in other spaces. That's who inspired you. I think that was our guiding light, was the work being done by the Lesbian Avengers, the performance artists, feminism in general, Food Not Bombs, Needle Exchange, ACT UP mainly, because they were so clever. And so just refusing to be shunned by the powers that be. 
So I think that was our guiding light. And I just interviewed Velveeta just briefly to get a quote for an article that I'm writing. And unfortunately, I don't think this quote is in there, but she did say like the lusty ladies were our guiding light, which is so sweet and Mm -hmm. amazing. (laughs) So um, yeah, I mean, ours was a two year endeavor. During that time, we rallied our community around kind of what we wanted and got signatures and got support, which was really important. The thing that's really special about San Francisco that's unlike here, but I can compare what the Star Garden Dancers did in equivalency, I guess is what we'll say. San Francisco is really special because it's small and you can like walk to another club, like, hey, let's go to Market Street. And like three or four of us would just be like, well, we're gonna go work at Market Street Cinema. Great, sleaziest club in San Francisco. I made so many <laughs> that fucking club. That's really where I learned to hustle. So we would go work at Market Street and Chez Paris and Centerfolds, and we would just go to other clubs. And that's how we survived. I remember my, for myself, because like we were locked out and then, you know, well, I'm going to have to go work at this other club tonight. That's just how it was. Like, just go work at the other club. And that is really different than LA. LA is very sprawled out. But mm-hmm. the, what the Star Garden Dancers did is a lot of hybrid online shows. So they just kept the ball in the air and they just like kept like doing these fundraisers that were online and had these like really cool Zoom components. And that's the same as like walking across the street and going to the Sutter Club for the night, Get, seeking refuge and finding these other channels, these other avenues of opportunity. So I feel like that was the point of affinity that I was trying to like say is that we were able to, I know for myself, cause I was so poor, I had to go like find another club to work at immediately like that night when we were locked out, which was fine and invigorating because that we were, I never doubted we were doing the right thing, but it was challenging, you know, to survive. And the Star Garden dancers like held fundraisers. They followed our Soldiers of Pole Federal Bar Raising Hell model and did that and like made a ton of money, sold it out every time. They just crushed it. And then just doing these online components So it's just innovation, you know, it's just innovation. So you guys were precedent setting for the unionization and then for the co-op that came after. Were you there for that part of it? I was not there for that part of it. I wasn't really active. I might've been on the schedule. I think I took a leave. I don't remember that part of it. That came, that was after my time. So I left around 98, 99. Mm Mm-hmm. I arrived, I worked, we unionized and I like stayed for that. And then I was making a lot of money in the lap dancing clubs, Mm -hmm. but I stayed on the, like, I, you know, of course voted and celebrated and stayed. And then I, I think I just moved on to the lap dancing clubs because I was making a lot more money. And, um, but I have a friend Pandora who was a union shop steward. She's on the paperwork. Like she was the name on the paperwork for the co-op and she can, we talk all the time and she, I can connect you if you want to talk more about that. Oh, that would be amazing. So I want to chat with you about starting Soldiers of Pole, now Strippers United. I feel like you set this whole thing in motion by giving this like container to it in LA, being like, this is 
ladies, this is, or I don't want to gender it, but people, uh, this is how you can do it. And it kind of started with the AB5 stuff, Mm -hmm. but what year, and tell me about the beginning of that. I want to say 2018 is uh, when AB5 came down the pipeline. And I remember talking with, you know, I come from a a law family. And so I remember talking to my dad about it and various other people about it. And realizing that it meant that we could unionize. Now, you know, it's a controversial topic among dancers because of how how it has been played out and how mm-hmm. the club owners have really put their spin on that and used it to divide dancers and to divide workers. Which I think, from a, if you look at it from a helicopter view, you can really see that. But there's a lot of anger and rage about the fact that BIPOC dancers were fired first. Mm-hmm. And veteran strippers were let go second. And mm-hmm. there's a lot of anger and rage regarding AB5, but I think it's misdirected because we never actually needed AB5. We've always been employees. And you can see that in multiple lawsuits in other states as well, not just California, but in these class action lawsuits and arbitration, you can, which are public, you can look them up and see how people have ruled, like in New Orleans. You can see how it has ruled in dancers' favor like 99.9% of the time that dancers are owed back wages because they've always been employees. So technically, now we really didn't need it. But I think that what it did is it awakened something. And it was meant for drivers, by the way. It was meant for um, truckers, Teamsters. Oh, long-haul truckers, Yeah. yeah. It was written with them in mind but it affected all of these other groups of workers. And I would say that it affected dancers very negatively. Like I don't, I'm not upset that they have interpreted it in a negative way. I still think that it made kind of the argument of whether we're employees or not more clear. And I think it made the path clearer and it lit our path more brightly to be like, okay, yeah. I mean, the Supreme Court of California says we are employees, therefore, employees can unionize. Now we are also, we should be awarded other things as well, but we're going to have to fight for that. And I think that I thought that it would be kind of easier to kind of convince people like, Hey, this means this. And you like every employee in California since 2014 has paid sick leave. No employer will ever tell you that you also have sick leave. Like let's say your husband or your partner has to get an operation, you can get paid day off for that if you live in California. And this is true. Like there's just a lot of things that are true, but like it's true in theory, right? Mm-hmm. In life, in the clubs, these are criminal enterprises that they are used to not only not acknowledging that strippers are <laughs> human and workers and that they have normalized ripping us off, tip stealing, committing wage theft and making us pay our own wages and worse. And all of the discrimination also. Um, But they've just become accustomed to not getting busted. And they have become accustomed to that being normalized by the dancers. So the dancers, we have also internalized and normalized this behavior. And I think that um, that is a lot of internal work that has been going on for the last couple of years. Like really untangling who told us that that's normal, that we should pay our own wages, that we should pay to work, that we have these arbitrary fees and fines. When you tell any worker, any other field, I mean, even car washers, 
have unionized. You tell a room full of workers, their jaws dropped on the floor. And we met, so since 2018, we started having Know Your Rights meetings. A.M. Davies, myself, Jordan Palmer, and the two previous founders who, for their own reasons, decided to like leave and move on to other things, um, which everyone gets to do. Activism sucks. Organizing sucks. It's really hard. It's really scary. It takes a lot of courage. It takes a lot of faith. Sorry, it does. Organizing sucks. It's very hard. But you saw this. I mean, I know it probably, you're in it, so it like seems longer. But just like how you said, it was fast, really, and how these movements yeah. can kind of go. I mm-hmm. mean, that's only been five years. And there's now a successful union club in LA. And they want to be a co-op. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it's fucking amazing. And I have a really good relationship with that group. I'm really, really close with them. Um, I'm really excited for them. They are bringing the really specific language and the post-COVID safety protocols to the table. They're bringing really important disability language to the table. They're bringing really exciting gender language to the table. They are really determined to get to push anti-discrimination language in the contract and force the club to hire a more vibrant and diverse roster of dancers. They're really committed to that. And I feel other strippers looking and waiting to see because trust is really um, hard to build with sex workers. As you know, even though I've trusted you from like day one, it's very hard to build trust. Yeah. But I mean, it looks like such a close knit, tight knit community and you see them waiting. Do you think there's going to be more? Yes. I hope and dream that there will be more. I think it can look a lot of different ways. I think pushing against the systems of oppression can look a lot of different ways. And the reason why I'm saying that carefully is because there are also some strippers pushing back and they are working within independent contractor language and they are Mm. still pushing for change. I think it can look in a lot of different ways. And I do think that other strip clubs are going to unionize. I do think that there's a certain club. I don't want to like blow kind of strategy stuff, but as much as I would love to see, you know, the larger corporate clubs really be taken down and changed in a big way because they are the worst offenders. I think we might have to start small mm-hmm. and go to the smaller clubs and and really just taking care of strippers and building stripper solidarity and organizing, even though like literally strippers and lots of people would rather do anything else but organize. It's scary. It takes a lot of courage. It takes a lot of looking into the future, you have to be willing to risk things and not everybody is willing to do that. And that's totally fair and that's legit. But I think that like, I think that strippers are waiting to see the contract and I know the Star Garden's intentions. And I think it's going to be really beautiful and exciting to see what happens. Yay. Do you think it's going to happen more? Stay tuned. (laughs) Well, 
I think we're at an interesting point for labor in a lot of different industries right now. And I think technology is kind of forcing that in some ways, you know, with the writers. And yeah, so it's like labor is having a moment. And I don't know. I think we might. There's inspiration that's proves it can happen. So before we go, tell us about your directorial debut. Oh, yeah. I am really excited. I had a first directing experience for a short film. It's called Lady Los Angeles. And the reason I did it, the reason I wrote it, I wrote several shorts um, with the thought of, wouldn't it be cool to have like Black Mirror, but sex work, like a sex work version of Black Mirror. Ooh. And so I have several shorts and this one is the one I decided to make. I felt really urgently about it because I've never seen a story that takes place post SESTA-FAFSA in a world where your life online is taken down and one has to survive. And I've wanted that. And it's about a Latinx trans femme person who's a skateboarder and she has community and she, she's just going through her day and she gets kicked off the internet and has to figure out how to make her day. And I don't want to give anything away, but, um, it's you know not easy for her, but also I also thought about the demographic of Los Angeles being Latinx and how important that is, you know, to have that person be at the center and to also have that person like have a complicated life with a lot of friends and support and what that looks like and also what it looks like to live in a aggressively gentrified neighborhood mm. and looking for work and how that feels to not be cool enough or not be this enough or that enough. And to be a sex worker during that specific time when, you know, your livelihood is illegal. So that's, that was um, the thought behind it. Is it in a festival? Is it, are people going to be able to access it soon? I will give you, I sent it to you, but yes, people can access it soon. I I think I'm waiting on some festivals. I did get into a festival called Translations. Oh, nice. And so we did, we did have a, a um, premiere, a world premiere. in Seattle and it was really really sweet and it was really fun and I got to see people that I've known for a really long time and uh, it was beautiful to see it on a big screen it was very overwhelming actually to see it on a big screen it's like very overwhelming it's really hard to describe the sensation of actors saying the lines that I've written it's like a very it's like you can feel it on your skin like I my skin just prickles when that happens, like I cried the first time it happened. Oh, <laughs> just like I can't believe. This. And I worked with the actor, a trans femme, beautiful person who, because um, it got shut down during the pandemic, so we waited like a year and a half. So I was on Zoom with her, and she and contributed to the dialogue. Amazing, which was really fun. Yeah, it was really cool. And our our entire set was you know trans led and BIPOC led and you know that is challenging collaborating is really challenging in general amen as I'm sure you know (laughs) I know this (laughs) it's deeply deeply collaborative making a film yeah and it's expensive and it's impossible you're so right I was just like I mean, this is a plug for your book spent but (laughs) I was just talking to my boyfriend about this I was like Writing books is, it's a solo act, baby. And if you're making 
movies or TV, whatever, you're in a band. <laughs> you're in a totally. big fucking band. You're in an orchestra. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that was really, really, uh, it's a really challenging experience, but it's a really, um, I would say I grew more from that experience in ways that were like very difficult. And yeah, I definitely am not in a hurry to be on the set again. Well, I love the sound of sex work Black Mirror, so I hope it happens, but maybe the next collaboration is going to be different. Different. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I think the first time, you know, anybody I talked to who's made their first movie, like it almost killed them. Oh, yeah. You know, every single person I've ever spoken to is like, oh my God, everything went wrong, everything. Like, it's just, that's the learning thing about the impossibility of making stuff. Mm -hmm. and making it on a shoestring especially you know without that big money or support really you're just like you're really just trying your best and um it's very hard are you do you direct films or are you mostly an actor and I know you're a writer but do you no but I'm hoping to I was talking about it in the context of like trying to write tv it's like let me just try try to write a book first and by myself where I don't need a million people. Yeah, and then you can write the pilot. Yeah. What a fabulous conversation with Antonia Crane. Make sure you follow her on social media and check out all of her work. Her links are in the episode description. And thank you for tuning in to this episode of Private Parts Unknown. To get notified of the latest Private Parts Unknown episodes, look down and make sure you're following the show on your favorite podcast player now. It's a little bell button on Spotify. On most apps, it's like a follow or a subscribe button. And to stay in touch between episodes, follow me at Courtney Kosak, that is K-O-C-A-K on Instagram and Twitter and follow the show at Private Parts Unknown on Instagram and at Private Parts Un on Twitter and Privates, I am shamelessly trying to hit the top 1% on OnlyFans always and forever so if you are interested in a Playboy style peek behind the podcast you can subscribe to my OnlyFans account, it is OnlyFans.com slash Coco Peep Show, again only fans.com slash Coco Peep Show. And you can subscribe to our newsletter. It is privatepartsunknown.substack.com. And there is a link for that in the episode description. And the Private Parts Unknown YouTube channel has been resurrected. There are videos with Gigi Engel, Dr. Amir Marashi, Amanda McNeil, Malta Amory, and so many more. So check it out. It is youtube.com slash privatepartsunknown. Again, youtube.com slash privatepartsunknown. And make sure you subscribe. It really helps us out in the algorithm. Shout out to Amy Rausch for the bomb-ass theme music. For more info about Amy and her music, check out amyrausch.com. That's Amy, R-A-A-S-C-H dot com. This episode was mixed by my ride or die audio guy, Michael Castaneda of Plastic Audio. And after enjoying this content, could we ask you for a quick favor? Just go to ratethispodcast.com slash private and give us a five-star rating and review. It is hot pod summer and we have some rating and review goals for Private Parts Unknown. We are trying to get to 350 ratings on Apple Podcasts and 150 on Spotify by the end of the summer. And you can help us out with that. It helps other people find the show. It makes us feel amazing and it helps with guest booking. And you can give us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts 
podcast. Or if you're listening on Spotify, you can just go to the upper left-hand corner of our page, click the star button, and then click all five stars. And voila, you have totally helped us out. And no matter where you're listening, you can just go to ratethispodcast.com slash private, and it'll give you several options to rate and review, including Apple Podcasts. And last but certainly not least, there is a new way you can support the show. We are now on the Fountain app. So if you are listening on a V4V platform and you get value from this show, you can support us by sending a boostagram. You can even send a comment along with your boost. And I have to say, those are my very favorite messages to get because they come with a little bit of money. Thank you so much for sticking with me to the end. Until next time, stay curious and keep exploring. Love you, Privates.